This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. There's a big, big news for you today. We've announced a brand new feature and podcast. It's called How to Win an Election. It's with Daniel Finkelstein, who you'll know from our regular Tuesday panels. Polly McKenzie, who if you listen to the show, you'll know from Think Tank Thursdays. Joined every week by Peter Mandelson to discuss how to win an election. Keep your eyes peeled for a bonus episode in your red box feed with all the details. But it's going to be great. It starts October the 31st. Just search how to win an election. Wherever you're listening to this, hit subscribe and you won't miss any future episodes. Right, coming up on today's episode of Red Box then. It's a very straightforward question. We've asked it a few times lately. What do the by-elections mean? As the Labour Party sweep to two huge victories over the Conservatives, what does it mean for Rishi Sunak, for Keir Starmer, and to some extent to the Lib Dems, having had designs on mid-Bedfordshire becoming third there? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at the news with the Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. No, uh, James Marriott this morning. We know what he's doing. India Knight is here, though. Hi, India. Hi, good morning. And we've got the spectators, James Hill as well. Hi, James. Morning, Matt. Playing the role of uh, James Marriott, which is lovely. Uh, Right, uh, let's start first of all. Um, We'll come to British politics in a moment. We obviously need to talk about what's going on in the world. And uh, let's just take a listen to Joe Biden making his big speech from the Oval Office last night. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That's why tomorrow I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request to fund America's national security needs, to support our critical partners, including Israel and Ukraine, is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. Um, India, it was interesting listening to Joe Biden in an address from the Oval Office, uh, sort of making the case for democracy around the world and how the US doesn't want to withdraw from the world. There was something sort of strangely sort of retro about it. It's been a while since we've had that. 
been a very long time and it was nice to hear. I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking that um, the previous incumbent had very little interest in either democracy or the rest of the world. Um, so, yeah, it was good to hear. It was also good to hear somebody speaking quite morally. You know, he understands that this is a question of moral leadership and that recent events have been Israel's 9-11 and that America and by extension, the American president can only have one response to that. Um, so I thought that was all very good. I also feel quite sorry for him because he's got to obviously dance a very delicate dance um, in uh, continuing to support Israel and not alienating the entire Middle East. So poor Joe Biden, good luck to him. Uh, what did you make of it, um, James? And it's been, you know, striking. I mean, he's got enough trouble back home that we'll come to. But Rishi Sunak... Really, the, his first sort of big foray onto the the world stage in a sort of reactive sense, rather than you know turning up to summits and shaking hands and all that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I think that you know, at, I think both Britain and the, and uh, America see, oh, we're at one on this and do really see it as. Uh, not just a series of sort of localized conflicts, but also part of you know some of the m main protagonists in this, such as Vladimir Putin, have sort of strong connections to Iran, etc. And so that you know they see these things as part of a pattern. So uh, you know Ukraine, Israel, and of course watching all of this is China and what might happen in in Taiwan. And there's also a sort of strong real politic angle for Joe Biden uh, because he's going to have this big package which he's preparing to send over later today, uh, 14 billion of aid for Israel and 60 billion for Ukraine. And of course, that's because uh, in the polarised climate of America, it's much more contentious, uh, the question of Ukrainian funding. So I think there's a good, strong, you know, perhaps cynical argument, but I think probably the right one to tie all these kind of conflicts together and make the case. And the idea being, you know, it's much easier to signal support for Israel. And the hope is that, you know, by tying Ukraine to that, you'll get more funding for the Ukrainians as well. And as you say, Rishi Sunak has really been a part of that, um, doing its bit to sort of be in the sense of a spear carrier for American efforts, uh, but also just using Britain's historic connections in the Gulf region and offering things like our intelligence um, from um, naval ships that would offer Israel um, support in this uh, struggle they're currently in. And well, we await to see, obviously, you know, the round of diplomacy is, is sort of still ongoing. Rishi Sunak uh, heading, uh, we think, to Egypt next. So we we await to see what happens there. And then, you know, the world sort of holds its breath to see what Israel actually does when it when it goes ahead with its grand offensive. Um, let's come back uh, closer to home now in a slightly a slightly lighter topic. It's been a it's a it's the anniversary today. Obviously, James. Uh, you have a special interest in this, having written a book about the extraordinary rise of one of our, our most significant politicians of our age before having to slightly rewrite the end. So let's just take a quick trip down memory lane. We will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. Queen Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Hard to identify, maybe uh, minor royals, members of the... Was I'm just told that was Liz Trust, the new Prime Minister. I mean, your Chancellor on Friday opened up the stable door and spooked the horses so much you can almost see the economy being dragged behind them. Are you absolutely committed to abolishing the 45 pence tax rate for the wealthiest people in the country? Yes. Frankly, the 45p wasn't a priority policy. What a day! Growth, growth, and growth. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Great pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. Abacus Economic, the Treasury orthodoxy has promoted for years. The way uh, that she and the former Chancellor went about it didn't work, and that's why we're doing it a different way. I'll now take questions. Um, 
Thank you very much, everyone. The Prime Minister is not uh, under a desk. I'm not entirely clear on what the situation is with the Chief Whip. I am a fighter and not a quitter. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Oh, it's enough to send whatever the opposite of a shiver is down your spine. Uh, James, how do you feel reliving all that, ha having been uh, Liz Truss's first and perhaps last biographer? Well, I, as you said, the hairs on my neck started standing up when I got all these clips coming back, those memories. I mean, just uh, on the day she left office, uh, we were meeting our um, publicist and they thought, is there a way we can get more publicity for this book? And at that point, literally on the screens, she came up and she came on TV and resigned. I thought, well, that's probably it. Um, <laughs> You know, as you say, it was an, it was a you know, astonishing rise and very quick fall. Um, look, I think that uh, you know, a year on, Liz Truss, you know, she was at party conference uh, only two weeks ago, and she's clearly not going quietly. She's spoken out about what went on in that time, um, and I think it's interesting for two reasons. I think one of which is that you know, it's clearly going to be a debate that obsesses the Conservative Party throughout the rest of the decade about you know, what did she get right, what did she get wrong, uh, and I think second of all, it's instructive for the next year because I think so much of what Rishi Sunak does is in opposition to Liz Truss's party management. So you see this in how he has these votes. You know, Liz Truss, obviously, the government was really finished off by that fracking vote uh, a year or so this week. And, um, you know, they have been, therefore, very determined to avoid any defeats on the House of Commons. Um, and if you get sort of 40 names or so, the complaint from some Conservatives is that then the whips will back down, etc. But that's all very instructive in terms of what not to do. And I think, uh, so for those reasons, Liz Truss, the good and the bad, will continue to be of relevance and interest and perhaps some amusement for years to come. Um, the, the interesting thing is, though, India, that given that you know, on this very day, this time last year, uh, Liz Truss resigned, and uh, uh, you know, a few days later, Rishi Sunak becomes prime minister. There's a very minor uptick in the polls for the Tories at that point. Nothing's really at the risk of quoting another slightly doomed prime minister. Nothing <laughs> has changed. Um, you know, in the latest YouGov poll for the Times today, the Tories on 25%, Labour on 47%, almost exactly where they were this time last year. Nothing that Rishi Sunak's done has is, is shifted things. It's very interesting. You do have to wonder if um, the, elect, the general election result under Sunak would actually be much better than it would have been if Liz Truss, God forbid, was still Prime Minister, because she represents that very strong strand of um, free market thinking, which will endure, I think, for a very long time. And also, the thing about Liz Truss, who I really, really disliked, and I'm really, just to be clear, I'm really happy that she's not in number 10 anymore, but she does stand for something. Liz Truss stands for something, and Rishi Sunak doesn't, really. I don't think, in the eyes of the voting public. So I think weirdly and semi-hilariously, she'll remain quite an important Tory figure, you know, long after Rishi's gone off to wear pool slides <laughs> in California. That's such an interesting thought, actually, James. Did, did, did at least uh, Liz Truss had a constituency with her in a way that it, it feels like Rishi Sunak doesn't even have that? It was a really interesting 
you know, story which we got told, which was that, you know, at some point in 2018, five years ago, Liz Truss was at the IEA think tank, you know, the bastion of free marketeers. And she brings this new MP in and says he's the future of free markets in the UK. And it's Rishi Sunak. And of course, their subsequent divergence on things like corporation tax when they were in Boris Johnson's government, I think shows two different strands of it. You know, one is the kind of, you know, Thatcherite view about sound money, which Rishi, which Rishi Sunak was claimed to represent. And the other is Liz Truss and the kind of Reaganite view about, you know, do tax cuts pay for themselves? And I think that in the terms of, as you say, there's a strong constituency associated with uh, Liz Truss. Obviously, it's something that the memberships chose last year, uh, you know, quite convincingly. Um, and I certainly think that she is getting an audience in terms of some of her criticisms. And I think some of those criticisms do have merit uh, on things like the, you know, the failure to see where the pensions crisis is coming. Um, where I disagree, I think, with some of the more ardent Trussites is, uh, you know, effectively there was a cons- you know, elements of a conspiracy against her, which I think was a little bit too far. Um, but I do think it's going to be something that plays out in opposition, not least because, you know, as India says, you know, there will be people who are looking around for kind of ready-made cause and argument, and they'll be saying, well, Liz Truss provided that. And, uh, you know, Certainly, as we've seen, the UK has not got a whole lot better under Rishinek than it was under Liz Truss. Well, let's turn our attention now. We were just discussing, actually, the, the, the polls and how things aren't looking very good for uh, Rishi Sunak. Let's ask now, when will the next election be? The Institute for Government has been looking into it. And I don't want to alarm you, but it could be all the way January the 28th, 2025. Catherine Haddon's from the IFG and can explain. Hi, Catherine. Morning. So let's let's um, look at the what are the rules. Uh, obviously, the last election was December twenty nineteen. What date could the election take place? Yep. So the last date is the 28th of January 2025. And that's because you've got to have dissolved Parliament five years after the last Parliament first met. So that means you've got to dissolve Parliament on the 17th of December 2024, which would mean a Christmas campaign, uh, which would be quite an extraordinary thing to do. We did used to do this uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. It was quite often that you would have an election in December or January. But obviously, we've got much more used to having them in May or June. And is that what's the logic for that? Is it because uh, the weather's better, so people turn out on uh, vote on election days, so they're more likely to vote, or is you know feel a bit positive and hope you change it? Is it because if you're going to spend three, four, five weeks putting leaflets through letterboxes, it's nice if the weather's better? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the logic that we've now kind of settled on as to why you would want to have them in May or June. It's actually really just in the Thatcher and the Blair years that you start to see them happening then. Before then, uh, sort of between 45 and 79, they were more likely to be in October. So um, our predecessors didn't think that you (laughs) needed to have nice weather for campaigning. But definitely, I think campaigners and MPs today uh, do prefer to go out there when there's more daylight hours. You're less likely to have wind and rain and snow perhaps, uh, and and maybe be able to get a better turnout. Obviously, if you're a prime minister that's hoping that turnout is lesser, perhaps you would want to go for a one in the darker depths of winter. But there's going to be so many different things that, that Sunak's calculating. And one of the reasons why we looked at pushing it longer, whether it be autumn next year or indeed waiting until February, is whether or not the economy improves. Because after the by-elections last night, obviously Sunak can't hope for a very quick turnaround in polls improving, but perhaps he can hope that if it, things go on longer, he's got a better chance if the economy improves a little bit at least. In fact, there's an interesting calculation to make. We've been discussing this, preparing for our new podcast, How to Win an Election. 
both Peter Madison and Danny Finkelstein think that Rishi Sunak should go for the spring. Danny making the point that actually the longer you go on, you might actually be making things worse. You might be hoping something turns up, you might mm. make things worse. Uh, uh, Polly McKenzie just disputed the premise of the question, which was obviously the most Lib Dem, uh, most Lib Dem thing to do. James, what's your calculation as to when the election will be? I think it'll be October next year. Um, and I think that, you know, just also to plug the Times great story today, which is that apparently the minister's been told of security concerns if it's held in November next year, which is when the American presidential election will be. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, ideally they would like to have the option of going in the spring of next year. And of course, you know, tying it in with those London elections, not having a double whammy of you know, uh, another narrative setback, if they lose badly next spring. Uh, but I just think that Prime Ministers don't tend to give up power early. Uh, the lesson is they tend to leave it a little bit too late, as they saw in 97. And I suppose, you know, talking to one MP who said, you know, we've only had two real early elections in the last 40 years. They were 1974 and 2017, and both backfired disastrously. So I think, <laughs> both of these, yeah, about a year of time. We've got one more year left, I think. What do you think, India? Well, I wish it would be as soon as possible because it feels like <laughs> the whole country is sort of treading water, waiting for the inevitable, and it's annoying. But, you know, equally, the whole point of politics is holding on to power for as long as you can. So um, I think it will be late. Although um, it's interesting, isn't it, whether th being late makes it worse or whether you just hope that something will turn up and it will make it a bit better. I don't know. Yeah, and if the if the... If the if the, by hanging on you make things worse, something else bad could happen. And the mm. general sense of get the Tories out mm. uh, builds up such a head of steam. of like, oh, just like you were saying, just, you know, there'll be lots of people just say, I'm just sick of the government uh, and I just want a change. And the longer they hang on, just the very act of hanging on starts, you know, just starts damaging yeah. them. Um, well, it'll be really interesting. What, what, do you, what do you actually think, Catherine, having looked at all of this and weighed it all up? Yeah, I mean, I've already uh, sort of suggested the 10th of October one, which is that you forego uh, the party conferences next year on the basis that, yes, they bring in money, but they also take away all the people that you need to be out campaigning. So if you announced it on the 5th of September, just after Parliament returns after the summer, you could have an election on the 10th of October. And that avoids that direct clash uh, with the US campaign period, um, doesn't leave it as long as, you know, going through to sort of December mm. or January. So that kind of feels more likely to me at the moment, but uh, we're all we're all guessing at the moment. And actually, in that situation, you'd essentially have a really, really, really long campaign because the summer recess would be, you know, when the weather's at its nicest. Uh, you know, you get your foot soldiers out, and you 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 know, from the moment Parliament rises in July, you'd essentially be on a sort of campaign war footing. Well, it's really exactly yeah, yeah, really interesting. Catherine, thanks for that. Catherine Haddon from the Institute for Government. Um, India, before we uh, let you go, why are you going to win a pig? Well, I'm not necessarily going to win a pig. I've been shortlisted for a, a pig. Um, I've been short. My most recent novel, which is called Darling, has been shortlisted for the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize, named in part after P.G. Woodhouse. And one of the things you win, well, you used to win an actual physical pig. And I would really love to win an actual physical pig because I've got the space for it where I live in Suffolk and it would be great to have a pig. But, um, They've changed it, so the winner gets a pig named after them. But I'd really like a pig, particularly a Tamworth, actually, appropriately, or a Gloucester old spot. So, but instead you get a pig just named after you? You get Not after you, no, that would be less charming. You get a pig named after your book. Oh, OK. So if I won my pig, I don't, know, I don't know if you can go and visit your pig or take it some apples or some pig nuts, I don't know. I don't know where the pig resides. But anyway, there is a pig, and you your book is named after can it. Can you go and look at it? eat it what do you I do hope with it? so I hope so well I'd just like to have the pig <laughs> yeah. here 
but um, but but yeah, presumably you can go and visit it. And this is because the, this is because there are lots of pigs in Woodhouse books. This is because of the Empress of Blandings oh, right. um, in uh, in P.G. Woodhouse. Yes, James, have you ever won a pig? Not yet, uh, <laughs> but I now have an ins- a, ch- a chance, a, a, a reason to write an inspirational, a great novel uh, like India. And uh, who knows, perhaps pol- politics is giving us great uh, material to work with for such a, <laughs> a feat. Yeah, it's got to, it's got to be a comic. It's got to be comic fiction, James. Was was your your book on Liz Trust was sort of comic nonfiction? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. So you get so so you get um, a pig, a Gloucester Old Spot. That's quite a big one, isn't it? It's got a big. No, no, pig. you don't get a Gloucester Old Spot. I'm just expressing a named after them. Gloucester Old Spot, named no, after yeah, uh, the and, title of your book. And you you get a lot of champagne. There's you another get a thing. load of champagne. And you get a lot of books from the Everyman Library. You get the, the whole P.G. Woodhouse collection. It's pretty nice. Pretty good prize. James Hill from The Spectator and India Knight, of course, from The Sunday Times. And you can read India every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, what do the by-elections mean? Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Strathern, Alistair Luke, Labour Party, 13,000, 872. I therefore duly declare Alistair Luke Strathen elected as Member of Parliament for the Mid Bedfordshire Parliamentary Constituency. Edwards, Sarah Siena, Labour Party, 11,719 votes. And I do hereby declare that Sarah Siena Edwards is duly elected. So, in Tamworth, a Conservative majority of nearly 20,000 overturned by Labour with a 23.9% swing from the government to the opposition, winning back a seat. Uh, there had been uh, Conservatives since 2010. A Tory majority of nearly 25,000 in mid Bedfordshire was overturned by Labour on a swing of 20.5%. A seat which has been blue since 1932. It's never been won by Labour before. 
It's despite the vote being split three ways, uh, following a, a strong result as well for the Liberal Democrats. It is a political earthquake, a sign that the Conservatives are perhaps destined to lose the next election. Or is it? Is it just what you'd expect from two by-elections fought by a party that's been in power for 13 years under difficult circumstances in both seats? Well, in a moment, we will hear from Labour, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems. But first of all, let, let's pick through the details on all of this. Times Radio's senior political correspondent, Patrick McGuire, is here. Morning, Patrick. Hello, Matt. And we've got uh, Professor Jane Green, Director of the Nuffield Politics Research Centre. Hi, Jane. Hello, hello. Uh, great, to, uh, great to have you with us. Um, uh, first of all, Patrick, just remind us of the circumstances this came about in... Uh, Clearly not the best. You know, sometimes we have by-elections because an MP's died or they've gone off to another job. These were definitely not the best circumstances to be fighting in. No, not, perhaps the worst possible circumstances to imagine. In the case of Tamworth, Chris Pincher, who was the Tory deputy chief whip under Boris Johnson, was accused of groping two men uh, at the Carlton Club in the July of 2022. Uh, famously resigned from ministerial ranks with a letter that began, Last night I drank far too much. Uh, he was suspended for six weeks uh, by the Commons Standards Committee, appealed that suspension. It was upheld, so he resigned. And Nadine Dorries, of course, uh, effectively went on strike for several months when she wasn't given a peerage by Boris Johnson, or rather Rishi Sunak didn't approve Boris Johnson's nomination uh, for her peerage uh, and resigned in those circumstances too. But there have long been uh, reservations locally about her commitment to the constituency. Obviously, she went on I'm a Celebrity in 2013, <laughs> yeah, of course. Didn't, didn't live in the constituency. So there was a perception locally she'd been absentee MP for a long time. So that's the political background of this. Uh, Jane Green, put some uh, historical precedents on this for us. Everyone is saying, you know, records have tumbled, history's been made. How significant do you think these two results are? So in a historic perspective, these are huge results. We haven't seen, I think we've seen one other by-election defeat um, like them. Tamworth um, was the 55th safe, safest Conservative seat. So, you know, if you imagine what we do on election nights where we have these big battle boards or battlegrounds and you've got kind of the, the ones that look like they're going to fall most easily on a small swing and then you go all the way to the other side of the battle board and you just think those seats aren't going to fall. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about moving right over to the safest Conservative seats. There are only 54 seats that are safer for the Conservative Party than Tamworth. So if you put that, you know, if you say, OK, well, if this result were then right across the country, then it's it's almost annihilation for the Conservative Party. I think, you know, the things to remember here is that obviously these are by-elections, as Patrick was just saying, there are also local factors that have probably increased the swing somewhat in these two seats. It's also true in by-elections, and we've seen this in other by-elections and in local elections, very, very high tactical voting. And, you know, that's been very evident for some time now. And it was evident before 1997 as well. So if we want to think of another historic context, that was an election where also there was a lot of tactical voting. Essentially, what we've seen is people very, very fed up with the status quo, very, very fed up with the incumbent. In London, that was a bit more complicated because there were two incumbents in Uxbridge. There was the Conservative government nationally and then the Labour Party in London. And then the same is true in Rutherford 
um, and sorry, Rutherglen and Hamilton in Scotland just recently too. So, so what we're seeing is very, very strong anti-incumbent voting. Um, we're seeing it in Tamworth and in Mid Bedfordshire against the Conservative Party, very, very, very strongly indeed. And I think you know tactical voting might not be quite as strong in a general election because. There's a whole election campaign going on. There are lots of messages. The majority of people don't have a very high awareness of the tactical um, context in their constituency for obvious reasons, right? I mean, we're all paying attention to lots of different things. Um, whereas in these by-elections, the tactical context was very, very clear. I'd also just maybe just put one kind of, just raise one point about um, Mid Bedfordshire as well, is that we're talking about this Labour win, we're talking about, you know, the vote being split three ways, the Liberal Democrats um, in uh, being in third place on 23% of the vote. But it was a small margin, we could have had a different outcome where we were saying, oh my gosh, you know, the Liberal Democrats, and the Labour Party, they've split their vote and the Conservatives just inched ahead. So it could have been a slightly different interpretation in Mid Bedfordshire, it was a very, very tight win for the Labour Party, but nevertheless, an enormous swing. Just, um, Jane, because when I was tweeting about the results this morning, a lot of people coming back and saying, well, it's on a very low turnout. We can't read anything into this. Uh, the Labour Party actually won with, I think, in mid-Bedfordshire with fewer votes than they got last time, but also it's the collapse of the Tory vote and, the, you know, it comes down to vote mm -hmm. show in the end. Is there any read across? Uh, are we over, do we risk over-interpreting it when, when turnout is, what, 30 40% compared to a, a general election, perhaps double that? Are we, or is there a read across from what happens in by-elections and then what happens in general elections? There is a read across, and the read across is that these very, very large swings have been happening in by-elections for the last couple of years and in local elections too. So this is an accumulation of evidence that there's a very strong anti-conservative vote. I think I'd just temper it just very, very slightly. And, you know, if I were kind of predicting, which I don't do as a rule, but if I was kind of thinking like, okay, how would I then extrapolate this to a general election? I'd just temper it a little bit because of that difference in the awareness of the tactical voting context in both of these by-elections, when all of the focus of these two or three major parties is all on these places for, you know, this last, um, this last number of weeks. These parties are, you know, hugely focused. Voters are being bombarded with information. And the people that are participating in these, you know, very commonly lower turnout elections, again, because we don't have all the kind of noise and the attention yeah, yeah. around a drone election campaign, are more likely to be aware of the tactical context. So the Liberal Democrats, for example, targeting mid-Bedfordshire, that's not going to happen in similar seats to mid-Bedfordshire in a general election. We're not going to necessarily see that level of attention by the major parties because they wouldn't ordinarily expect to win a seat like that. So um, so there is a bit of a difference. I think, you know, it's really important to say, though, that all of the evidence is stacking up. It's consistent with the opinion polls. It's consistent with other elections. There's a very, very strong anti-conservative sentiment out there these swings are likely, you know, the swings that we're seeing now, unless something dramatic changes in the next year, are likely to be very bad news for the Conservative Party. What we're talking about then is just by what margin. And I suppose that, that's the that's the thing, isn't it, Patrick? The, the, uh, every, you know, for the last 12 months, Labour have had a big poll lead, you know, the whole time that Rishi Sunak has been Prime Minister on the day that, you know, today's the first anniversary of Liz Truss resigning. There was a tiny uptick when he took over. The leads basically remain the same. At every opportunity when uh, the parties have gone to the polls, whether it's local elections or by-elections, the Labour Party's clearly doing very well and the Tories are doing really badly. What are you hearing from Conservatives 
the 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 line to take seems seems vague. Greg Hans this morning saying there's no enthusiasm for the Labour Party as there's a twenty point swing towards them. Well, no, and look, that fundamentally un- misunderstands how first past the post elections work in this country because the, because ultimately, if you don't like the Conservative Party when they're in government, your option you either vote for the Labour Party or you or you don't. That's very crudely simplistic, and I'm sure Jane will you know, uh, chastise me for that. But that's, basi- that's basically the question for electors, you know, Tories, yes or no, uh, I- in this country. Uh, I think the reaction among Tory MPs can be summarised as a mixture of fatalism and delusion. Uh, I'd say the 2019 intake of Tory MPs have been very voluble on WhatsApp talking about, well, our voters just didn't turn out and they'll come back and <laughs> it'll be fine. They were just, they were just busy. They were just... Yeah. Uh, once once turnout is up, that that's something people like Pat Fan, Labour's national co- campaign coordinator, will be saying to to people in uh, in Labour HQ to ward off complacency. But I mean, it's not a strategy for getting back into into number ten. And I think MPs of older vintage yeah. uh, and and uh, the older intakes are waking up and smelling the coffee. I think it's taken defeat in a place like Mid Bedfordshire to make them realise actually the. The polls are right. They have been right for a year. And actually, they just got a bit giddy about Uxbridge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When actually the lesson of Uxbridge was that Labour have come within 400 votes of yeah, yeah, yeah. winning a constituency. They didn't even win in 1997. And yeah. It's, yeah. Well, we're interested to see uh, what the various parties have got to say. We'll, fight, we'll do that next. We'll hear from uh, Conservative MP, Labour and the Lib Dems. Uh, Jane, really good to speak to you. Thank you for that. We'll speak to you soon. Uh, Jane Green there, Professor Jane Green, Director of the Nuffield Politics Research Centre. Uh, right, let's bring in then the Conservative MP, Michael Fabricant. Morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. More to the point, how are you and how's the Tory party? <laughs> I'm very well. The Tory party is not very well. Um, you tweeted this morning that saying that, uh, well, you, you pointed out that in a Times red box poll uh, this week, uh, the don't cares when it came to the future of Greg Hands, whether or not he should resign if, you, if he... Uh, lost both by-elections. Uh, 70% said don't care, which you said was kind. 19% said he shouldn't. 11% said he should. Do you think Greg Hand should resign? Oliver Dowden resigned as party chairman last year after losing uh, by-elections. Do you think Greg Hand's Tory party chairman should resign? No, I don't think he should resign. I'm afraid. I think it was rather inevitable because it was a by-election that we would lose those two by-elections, as bad as it was and good as it was for Labour. I'll say just two things. One is, you know, that we did not detect, and neither did the Labour Party detect, there being switches between the Conservative and the Labour Party. It was the Conservatives staying at home. Now, that still meant it was a loss. But what it also means is... If the Conservative Party can actually deliver on its promises on the ground, I think it'll make a big difference in the general election. Oh, and incidentally, I thought I'd sort of monopolise this, but it does remind me that way back in 1990, uh, the old Mid-Staffordshire constituency, which was Litchfield, which I represent, we lost the by-election there. Thumping great loss, uh, but we won it back uh, at the general election. Michael, some people will be listening to this and thinking you're slightly uh, cl- cl- clutching at straws. That, uh, well, I'm optimistic. Last... I'm always an optimist. That's why I was in but business. Wh- why, why Michael? MP. For the last 12 months, the Labour Party have basically had a pretty solid 15, 20-point lead in the polls. Rishi Sunak has tried not saying very much in public. He's tried saying lots of things in public. He's tried announcing things. He's tried cancelling things. He's uh, Every single... 
um, time we're told he's pushing the reset button, it hasn't made the blindest bit of difference. And every time you've gone up against the electorate, there's been huge swings from the Conservatives to the Labour Party. Why are you still optimistic? I'm optimistic because there aren't the switches from Conservative to Labour as there was in 1997. Now, look, I'm not uh, trying to deceive you or anybody else, and least of all myself. Making announcements, making promises, stopping things, starting things is not going to make a blind difference, bit of difference with the electorate. But what will make a difference is if we actually start delivering on our promises. And you know the list of promises. We won't go through all over them but again. But people, we... people who think you've had 13 years, you've had 12, you had 13 months to deliver on your promises. At what, what, at what point will people... Uh, people have already made their minds up. If you look at the polls, people have switched. I take your you're saying that people have stayed at home. It's not great that people stay at home, uh, but some people will have gone to the polling station yesterday and put the bo tick of the box next to Labour, who in 2019 voted Conservative. There will have been switches. very few, very few on the canvas returns, both our canvas returns and the Labour canvas returns. But why should actually. anyone, now, look, why should anyone Matt, take I'm any notice for the next year when they haven't taken any notice for the last? year well matt i'm saying to you they won't take any notice you are right unless we start to deliver on the ground and that means getting people who come over here illegally off to rwanda in order to deter people from coming here with the boats if it means that we can actually deliver more money in people's pockets if they can see that we are delivering on our promises if we don't you're absolutely right. Conservative voters are not likely to vote Labour, but they'll stay at home and the result will be the same. We'll have a Starmer government. But Starmer is no Tony Blair. Well, I suppose the, the, the evidence so far is that Rishi Sunak isn't John Major either. Well, certainly not John Major, no. And he did win an election. He was a former Chancellor who did win an election shortly after becoming Prime Minister. Well, let's see if Rishi Sunak can as well. And it'll all be down to whether the government can deliver on its promises. Well, let's turn to uh, the Labour Party then. Uh, Shadow Minister for Without Portfolio, Nick Thomas-Simmons joins us. Hi, Nick. Hi, Matt. Good to join you. It's in the bag, isn't it? A stonking Labour majority is on the way. Certainly isn't uh, in the bag, but I think what we are seeing is very substantial progress from where we were when we suffered our heaviest defeat since 1935, back in December 2019. We are a changed party. Keir Starmer's leadership uh, has been firm. It's been solid. And it's put us in a position where, we, where there are no no-go areas anymore for Labour. And we've seen that by these two by-election victories in, uh, frankly, Tory heartland of mid-Bedfordshire, which... Uh, uh, the Conservatives had held since 1931, and then in Tamworth, which was held by the previous MP with a majority of 19,000. So these are incredible victories in what would usually be difficult territory. How much of this is down to the Starmer factor, and how much of it is down to the fact that you're up against a party which has been in government for 13 years, led by, most recently, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and, and Rishi Sunak? Well, whenever parties... Uh, are ejected from government it tends to be that the government becomes unpopular but you have to have a credible party of government in opposition Keir Starmer uh, is a credible prime minister I disagree by the way I overheard part of your interview with Michael Fabricant I came across 
across conservative voters, lifelong conservative voters, who were putting their trust in Labour for the first time. And we're very conscious of that responsibility as well, because just because the Conservatives have lost the nation's trust, it doesn't mean we inherit it automatically, and we will continue yeah. to work for it continue to earn it and fight for every vote. I mean, one of the things that, you know, people joining parallels with 1997, one of the things you also need to be careful of is is complacency. Like you said, it's not in the bag yet. Um, I just want to play you a clip of Peter Manelson uh, speaking on our new podcast, How to Win an Election. What, one really big issue for the Labour Party, and I did feel this in Liverpool, many of them, I'm afraid, really do feel that the election's been won. And that is so poisonous. It is so corrosive uh, for a party. Why is uh, it corrosive? Well, I so tell you why. I tell you why. Because it makes you make, it, it leads you into traps and mistakes. It makes you feel well. Actually, it doesn't matter if we, you know, just make ourselves sort of half better or half appealing or put this policy half right. You know, let's sort of split the difference between appealing to the public and keeping the party happy. Nick Thomas-Simmons, your job is Shadow Minister without portfolio. Is it is it to wage a war on complacency? Yes, and, and, and Peter is right to point to the dangers that there are for us if anyone across the party assumes that this election is won. And it's something in the preparation for government work that I'm doing that I constantly say to people, and I know right across the Shadow Cabinet there's that same view. Of course we are confident we should be confident we are determined but we are not in any sense complacent for exactly the reasons that peter mandelson is talking about in that clip we have to uh, continue to fight for every vote and it's something keir starmer by the way reminds us of on a weekly basis and he's right to do so Nick, really good speech. Nick Thomas Simmons there, uh, Shadow Minister without portfolio on a busy, uh, busy day. So that's the that's the reaction from Labour. What about the Lib Dems? They had high hopes of winning in Mid Bedfordshire. Uh, they thought they were best placed because uh, former Conservative voters wouldn't necessarily want to switch to uh, the Labour Party. It didn't quite pan out like that. Labour winning uh, with a big swing. Let's speak to the Lib Dem Chief Whip, Wendy Chamberlain. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Matt. You must be really annoyed by this annoyed but obviously disappointed because it would have been fantastic to get Emma Holland Lindsay um, elected but what I would say is is we were the only party yesterday who got more votes than we did in 2019 and we almost doubled our vote share and I suppose if we are looking forward to the next election that uh, swing that we saw to the Liberal Democrats means that there are now dozens of Conservative seats that are in, in, in real play for the Liberal Democrats at the general election Is there somebody in a white van driving around mid-Bedfordshire now with a Vasey stunt uh, prop, uh, which was going to be used today, which is now going to have to go into the lockup. Well, Matt, I know that you'll have been really disappointed not to have seen a Lib Dem stunt today, and obviously we're disappointed that we've not had the opportunity to do it. But, you know, I think what that... Do you know what it was? Was it? Um, no, it's always top secret, so no, I haven't had the opportunity to find out as yet. But, you know, we have celebrated the by-election wins, the four by-election wins that we've had in this Parliament, because they were pretty stunning with huge swings where you're right, disillusioned Conservative voters uh, heard our message and, 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 and came across. And as I say, I think when we look at the doubling of our vote share, plus the increase in votes that we saw, it's quite clear. John Curtis agrees that there are, are dozens of Conservative seats that potentially come into play for the Liberal Democrats next year. Wendy, thank you for that. Wendy Chamberlain, Lib Dem Chief Whip. Well, Patrick, that's a sort of romp round all the parties. 
Michael Fabrican, even an optimist, was sort of laying out quite a high test for what Rishi Sunak needs to do in the next 12 months, if he's got any hope of remaining as Prime Minister. It was a very high test indeed. Now, the answer I was most struck by was when you put that very blunt question to him about the election Tory MPs have been telling themselves could be about to happen again, 1992. You asked him, is he a John Major? And Michael Fabrican said he's no John Major. That is, in, in effect, not in as many words, saying, look, <laughs> 1992, itself uh, a remarkable achievement for John Major, yeah. probably ain't going to happen. Well, let's, uh, let's speak to someone who's been very critical of the direction of the Labour Party, uh, sorry, of the Conservative Party uh, in recent times, David Campbell-Bannerman, former Deputy Leader of UKIP and a former Tory MEP. Um, and I think it's fair to say, David, uh, fan of Boris Johnson. Uh, yes, I am. I'm still a fan of Boris Johnson, that's true. Would yeah. the Tories have won these by-elections if Boris Johnson had still been Prime Minister? Well, it's theoretical. I, I personally think the polling would be kinder to us. I mean, when he left office after Partygate, even after Partygate, he was only uh, 2 to 4% behind in the polls, and now we're consistently 20% behind. And as these by-elections have shown, you know, that is a real vote when it comes down to it. 20% swings, you know, uh, a lot of uh, Tory members are missing, 20,000 voters in this, these various constituencies and in previous ones like Somerton. Um, I know that you, you in the past hoped, hoped to, to see Boris Johnson back. He's obviously not in the Commons anymore and he's very busy writing his, his column and so on. Uh, one other story that's bubbled up since Tory party conference is the prospect of Nigel Farage joining the Tories and becoming Tory leader after the next election. Is that, would you like to see your old mate Nigel in charge? Uh, well, I <laughs> I welcome Nigel to the CDO gala dinner. He came to that with GB News, actually. And uh, and um, it was good to see him at conference. And he got a hero's welcome. And not from those that you would expect. I mean, a lot of young people um, were, were running out. So, I mean, Nigel is... In, I worked, I was deputy to him for four years. Mm. He's instinctively a Conservative. He was Beckenham Conservatives back in the 90s. Um, and he'll be very welcome back in the fold. Where, whether he goes on to lead the party or not, well, you know, that's conjecture. I think what we've got to look at is getting the Tory vote uh, back again, you know, because it's basically gone on strike. You know, Conservative members have gone on strike. And, uh, well, we know the reasons because we're not being Conservative enough. What would you like to see then? What would you, what, what would you like to see Rishi Sunak do, which he hasn't done so far, to try and turn this situation around? Well, I th I'd like to see tax cuts. Um, I know we've got to be fiscally responsible. I understand that. But there is room for some tax cuts, even if it's a gesture, even if it's a more long-term thing. Um, and to control public spending. There seems to be, you know, it, it's massive amounts of money being uh, spent in all sorts of directions. I think we just need to sort of get a grip on things uh, and to reassure Conservative members we stand for the right kind of things, values, get a grip on immigration, Let, let's stop the boats, not talk about it, let's actually get a grip on it and do something uh, significant. And I think we'll begin to get the confidence back. We've got it about a year, but at the, at the rate we're going, this is it's going to be worse than 97, says uh, Professor John Curtis. And that really is a disaster. We must turn around now and change direction, whatever that takes. David, always good to speak to you. Thanks so much for that. David Campbell-Bannon there, uh, joining us on Times Radio. Final thought from Patrick McGuire, just that shopping list. Tax cuts, reduce spending, stop the boats. If it was all, if only it was all so straightforward. Well, I think he speaks 
for a lot of Tory MPs. And I think that that'll, those will be the issues on which the, uh, on which the next Tory leadership election is fought. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's already begun. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe on how to win an election. It launches October the 31st with Daniel Finkelstein, Peter Manson and Polly McKenzie. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.